Hello everyone and welcome back to What Would The Smart Party Do? Or welcome if it is indeed your first time. And with me, as usual, is my good friend Baz. How are you doing, Baz? It's not my first time, is it? Just feels like it every time. It's so fresh and new. You're good. Been a bit under the weather recently. Well, yeah. Apologies if I cough a lot during this. I'm going to try hard not to. I've got um, some medicinal grape juice. Well, I call it grape juice. <laughs> that, that's basically what wine is, right? <laughs> But there'll be no more whining now, for there's a new game on the horizon, and our special guest for the show, coming from the odd, before we go back into it, is Mr. Chris McDowell. How are you doing, Chris? Hi, I'm good. How are you? Well, we're, we're living the dream over here. So, <laughs> we've noted that you've uh, you've teamed up with some good friends of the show at Free League, and you've produced a new edition of your highly successful and acclaimed game, Into the Odd. Do you want to tell us, well, first of all, for listeners who might not know about it, what is Into the Odd? I mean, surely your listeners are going to be on board with it because out of all of the, um, I remember you were the first people to talk about Into the Odd, like, at all. Really? Yeah. Trailblazers, yeah. That's us. At all? Oh, okay. At all, yeah. It's, it's one of my, like, really clear memories of after I'd written um, and released Into the Odd. I, I, I used to just search for, you know, you go to Google and you think, is anybody actually talking about this game I've released? And, you know, a few, <laughs> a few people have bought it, but not, 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 to, not tons of people. And uh, yeah, it's the first time I saw a podcast come up and I saw um, it was by Gaz and Baz and I thought that can't be their real names. This has got to be some kind of uh, some kind of comedy act thing. Also that. <laughs> More things are true. Yeah. Well, yeah, I soon discovered it wasn't a comedy act uh, when I wasn't laughing. <laughs> but, then, but yeah, I, I remember listening to it like on the way to my day job at the time. So yeah, that, that's, that's not a good description of the game. Um, but yeah, into yeah, the we'll, we'll, we'll have another go. Because although our, our old, long-lasting, long-serving listeners will no doubt have remembered our, our previous interview, we've had new people since then, you know, at least oh, two. Wow. So for, for their, both their benefits. Yeah, because this would have been like about seven years ago now I think about it. But yeah, this was um, so. Into the odd is a um, that the sort of tagline I'm using is rules light, flavor heavy, which is another thing I wish I'd thought of seven years ago. <laughs> and yeah, it's it's an attempt to have a really minimalist sort of OSR style system that you can use for kind of kind of like OSR style like play, like treasure hunting, going into dungeons, exploring wilderness, having as few rules as possible, and making things run as quickly as possible but also while having a lot of flavor in there and a lot of sort of a lot of implied setting and um and setting kind of being infused into everything um and yeah so that the, the the remastered edition is what you're um, obviously referring to now and that that's currently uh, currently running on Kickstarter it's doing all right isn't it it's, it's doing all right <laughs> i'll take it <laughs> it's day 2 we should say by now yeah f- funded more than once already in the yeah. first 24 hours so <laughs> That's that's not bad at all. So the the original game when you brought it out, it was kind of like I don't know the A five, but a little digest, thin, slim volume, and fairly. I think the design was fairly minimalist as well. It's fair to say. But if if we take a quick look at the Kickstarter page, the new thing is colourful. It's almost Terry Gilliam esque in terms of the design. It's quite can be mm. quite abstract or um, not quite surreal, but like yeah. uh, more imaginative than um, definitive images. So uh, what's the feeling about this new graphic design behind it as well? So I wanted like, um, so the, I should say the graphic design is being done by um, Johan Noor, who um, people might know from Morkborg. Mm-hmm. I, I keep working on my pronunciation of that, but I don't ever get it right. Yeah, so the people might know him from, uh, from, from Morkborg. And it, when I sort of told... I let slip to a few people that this was happening before I'd sort of announced it. And the, the people were concerned that, is it going to be like Mokborg inside? Because Mokborg is is very Mokborg. I, I like it and I think it suits that game very well, but you wouldn't want every game to be that way or else you'd have a migraine every time you try and uh, try and like learn a new game. Um, so <clears throat> we, we sort of, I knew that I wanted some of that kind of chaos in there, but I wanted the, the sort of text and the layout itself to be quite, crisp and kind of clear and, and ordered um, so you've got the kind of split where the text is quite um, sort of quite traditionally laid out really and very sort of clean and crisp and you know leaving white space to let the words breathe but then we, I wanted to have that kind of chaos element come in through the art so the art is a lot of kind of collages uh, sort of psychedelic twisted public domain art sort of lots of quite bold colors and that's the kind of that's the odd element I guess that's the kind of the weirdness coming through. Yeah, def- definitely achieves that. It's, it's got a style, that, that's for sure. I think probably that designer has got distinctive styles. 
Yeah, and we wanted it to kind of feel almost like it, it was um, like, like almost like it was an artifact that an explorer might have. So a lot of the artwork has got like sort of notes scrawled on it um, and sort of like little charts and stuff kind of sketched onto it. So we're trying to make it feel like it's a it's it's a kind of physical artifact because, like you say, the first release that I did sort of the game was previously published through Lost Pages and it was like an A5 booklet sort of thing. Hmm. I was I, I'm still very proud of that. Like you know, seven years later, but um, it's. It, it, I wanted to have something that felt a bit more like it was a piece of the world almost and it was like a sort of a sturdy concrete thing that had sort of come out of this world if that makes sense yeah it totally does it's, it's a really nice artifact and I think um, one of the differences from seven years ago I'd be interested in your take on this is that with Kickstarter this kind of stuff is possible now desirable and is it almost mandatory to have like a great looking book I think I, so I was I was writing about this today because I'm when people asked me how this kickstart was going to do beforehand and I was a few people asked me for like forecasts of like what I was expecting and I genuinely didn't know because there are so many unknowns with this project and um, because it's not just me it's you know I'm, I'm working with with Johan and Free League are involved with the the, the um, distribution and the printing so um, there were a lot of unknowns but since it's done very well in the first sort of well we're currently about 36 hours in um, since it's done very well, I've kind of now decided that I'm a guru of marketing. So I was making like a list of like, here, here's why it succeeded. And I, the first thing on the list, funny enough, was the fact that I think if you're going to put your game on Kickstarter, I think you, you do want it to be a good game. But if you have a good game that doesn't catch people's eye, you're just not going to, you're not going to catch people. And there's so, there's so many things on Kickstarter now and so many things that look amazing that... I don't. I don't think any anybody wants to see a world of like beautiful games that are just really badly designed. But I think you kind of got to do both now. You can't. You can't. It's not sort of enough to just release like a, you know, a very kind of ordinary looking book. Unfortunately, which which is 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 unfortunately a little bit of a barrier to entry. But I think that's that's the kind of the situation I'm seeing on Kickstarter at the minute. I presume the business element of that then is that making what looks like to a casual observer the punter on the street becoming a millionaire on Kickstarter or making tons of cash, which all looks like 99% profit, that's got to be recycled back into the art budget, which is never small for any kind of design project, is it? Yeah, I mean, that's the... I think outside of printing, it's the biggest single mm. cost for the... Like, I've, I've, I was joking about being a guru. This this is my second Kickstarter, so I can't <laughs> really uh, be claiming too much. It's, it's a massive thing, but I think that the way that I've kind of made it work... And the advice that I was given um, ahead of ahead of my previous Kickstarter was to sort of find find one person that you can work with, and sort of basically work with as few people as possible, and just kind of almost like do a partnership. Like if you're a writer and a designer, like find someone who can do art and layout, and sort of work with them. And that's a lot more straightforward than ending up in a situation where you owe royalties to like eight different artists mm. and you know pinch of salt that that's one way of doing things but that's kind of that's kind of worked well for me because it feels a bit more like a collaboration between me and the artists so with the previous book I had Alex Sorensen do all the art and with this one it's Johan's done all of the art so it's it's something I think I would continue definitely just using one artist yeah I like that kind of consistent looking books anyway if you know whatever the role-playing game it's all either the same art or for example, with the One Ring, uh, John Hodgson has his style, but he, he managed to find like three or four other artists who all drew like him to an extent. You know, what I mean? like, so it all seemed like a consistent picture, and I think that really um, it ties it together as a product. I don't know. I just it feels better to me than looking at something like certainly older White Wolf books where they picked seventy three different fonts and as many different artists, and uh, you know it was all over the place. You couldn't get any theme for it. Whereas I think flicking through uh, the the remastered into the odd, you, you definitely get a flavour. And that, that stays with you throughout the product, which I think is kind of what you're, must be part of what you're aiming for. Yeah, definitely. I think it's um, the, the good thing about, you know, the fact that every RPG designer is now like part of part of the community in some sense, it seems. Um, it's I, I feel like I've seen a lot of like collaborations between like big groups of people and sort of teams that have like even like on small projects, teams that have like t three writers and two editors and hmm. four people doing the art. And I've this is this is purely just like my own selfish um, preferences but i i think what i i always like it when i'm reading especially like a blog post or something that's just written by one person you get kind of an unfiltered version of that person's mind like yeah. if i'm reading like 
I don't know, like Patrick Stewart's blog or like Arnold Kemp's blog or any of these kind of OSR bloggers that have been going for a long time. It's you could almost just put that in front of me and I know I, I could recognize their writing without you telling me what blog that I'm on. And that, that's kind of what I'm going for with doing such a small team. I think if I could draw and if I could do layout a bit better than I did for Electric Bastion, and I think I would I would love to be able to do it all myself. Um, but again, it's that kind of, it's, you sort of see the same thing in video games where if I'm going to, I'm going to harken back for an, a dated, a dated reference to get you guys um, going, but like the sort of like the spectrum um, video game designer, like in their, in their attic, like programming a game on their own, you got like a sort of one person's vision of what they wanted to make. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, you, there is obviously indie games now, but like compared to like a big team AAA thing. Um, I think it's quite good sometimes to get that kind of more personal one person's vision. Yeah. So you, you've mentioned um, an initialism a few times there, OSR, and said this is OSR-like rather yeah. than OSR. So what what is... This, this is the big question. No, Don't you dare what, ask that question. What, what is OSR? <laughs> or, or why is this not OSR? And what's... Because there's like the beer OSR hashtag as well for British OSR. So what, yeah. what, why, why have you not said, or why do you, would you say this is OSR like rather than OSR? What's what's the thing that makes it? Is it like just distancing from the hashtag, or or what? I, I'm, to be honest, I, I'm I'm kind of like past. <laughs> this sounds terrible. This isn't me. You've got this over isn't me being horrible to you. This is me being horrible to like the internet as a whole. Um, I'm kind of past the point of caring about like what label you put on something now. Yeah. So um, it's like arguing about music genres, isn't it? Like, I to me, OSR means something because you know my designs came out of that particular kind of space, especially around like Google Plus and the blogs that were happening like you know seven years ago when Into the Odd first came out. It, it it does have meaning to me, but I I, I wouldn't necessarily expect it. I, I don't expect these labels to ever last forever. It feels like that there's always something new coming, and I, I'm not shying away from the label OSR at all. But I think um, I think I'm trying to just like let it speak for itself now because it it just it, <laughs> I'm, I'm tired of having the conversation. Do you know what I mean? Does it make more sense, Chris, to um? To sort of tie it into the, your previous answer, you were talking about that single vision of the, you know, the one or two person writing team. Yeah. Did it make more sense to maybe refer to it as DIY because that that was a big hashtag that you often saw next to OSR for a very long time? Yeah, that, this is literally now. a DIY. Of, it, it's literally DIY, isn't it? Into the odd. And, and yeah, and and the good thing the good thing about um, these labels is it is useful to be able to sort of like as much as I complain about them, it's useful to be able to like find games that are similar to things you like. So, like the the big one that I'm enjoying at the moment is uh, FKR, which is the Free Kriegspiel Revolution, mm-hmm. which I won't try and describe because it's a little bit um, <laughs> it's a little bit <laughs> complex. Um, but um, yeah, I think I think DIY is good. I think the the problem with any kind of label like that is before long with any kind of label, someone's going to attach themselves to it that you don't want to be attached to, and I think that's just that's just the way of things. So. Um, so yeah, I'm just I'm just going to create my own genre. It's it's just games games made by me are now officially their own their own style. That sounds good, mate. Other people can't use Bastion, and I don't think I think I could I think I could get them for that. Yeah, I think I think you'd probably be allowed to. <laughs> I mean, the, I mean, our luckily our loyal listeners are, are incredibly educated in the in the realms of role playing, um, and I don't think they'll have any trouble at all in picking this up. But just in case there's a couple of listeners who aren't quite getting a handle on what this is yet, I think we probably do need to delve a bit deeper into perhaps what's the core activity. You know, what's the what does a game of Into the Odd look like? Does it look like a, a session of critical role? And I, I'm, obviously I know the answer. So, or, or does it look like something um, completely out of sync with like a trad game that you might see at a convention? I mean, what, what happens in, in a typical game of Into the Odd, just as a kind of a, an elevator yeah. pitch? So Into the Odd is kind of based around two elements that I always really enjoyed in role-playing games, sort of going back to playing things like Warmer Fantasy Roleplay and, you know, D&D and things like that. The two things that I've always really enjoyed are exploration and problem-solving. So the idea that you can go anywhere and the idea that you can um, try anything to try and, like, solve a problem. So if there's if there's a brick wall in front of you, there's a million different things you can try to do to get through that brick wall. 
Um, even if you end up rolling dice and having the same effect, just that kind of freedom is always what's really appealed to me. Um, so, yeah, the, the exploration element, the main way I kind of get that across is things run very fast in the game. So you tend to... So there is a bit of a focus on kind of exploring dungeons and, like, dangerous locations and the wilderness. Um, and... That that's sort of represented with the the sample adventure that's in the in the game. Um, there's there's a dungeon and a wilderness and a town, and um, and the problem solving is kind of best represented by the fact for the, the the way that there aren't necessarily rules for things that you might expect there to be rules for. Um, it's interesting because this this was perhaps a bit of a more radical thing when I did it seven years ago, but I feel like now I've seen it become more common where a lot of games don't have rules for things like social interaction and mm. finding traps and they, they expect you to be able to do it through conversation um but that's kind of the big the big thing is that it's about going into dangerous places and using creative solutions to to address the problems rather than just fighting them and i should say the problems themselves are likely to be some kind of absolutely horrific monster so that's the um bringing in the kind of the horror element definitely definitely helps with that yeah and, and you touched on i think um on a, on a kind of a valuable point there is that if you're trying to give a kind of a shopping list of what into the odd is that shopping list could work equally as well if you just said well it isn't so there's a bunch yeah. of stuff that's um that you might expect to find in a role-playing game that just isn't there like rolling to hit yeah i mean that's, <laughs> that's the big one that, that i think really kind of stuck stuck out for people yeah, so it's my my design approach has always been to kind of go at to go go at systems with an axe and just chop off bits until it doesn't work, and then just put that last bit back on so that it works mm. again, and then leave it. And um, this game kind of started out originally as being much more close to sort of basic D and D, just with a lot of kind of a lot of kind of rules changes that I liked. And yeah, the, the sort of extreme example is that there's no longer rolling to hit; you just roll for damage and um your hp is kind of your hp is a lot easier to get back it's more of a buffer before you start taking the real damage which comes off your strength score um and the the main reason is what i said before about wanting it to run quickly because we've all played those games where you sit down and a, a combat starts and you kind of feel like you already know what's going to happen mm. so you, you get halfway through a combat and you've been playing for maybe 20 minutes and you think yeah we've pretty much got this under control we just need to keep hitting this thing and the numbers are in our favor and then it takes another half hour to finish but yeah the whole removing the to hit thing is kind of based around this idea of decisive combat where i want players to make a choice to engage in combat so combat isn't assumed and then when they're in combat they've always got the option to change their plan so that that, that things are going to go things are going to get dangerous pretty quickly but they're going to have a chance to kind of mix up their plan or their strategy in the middle of the combat and then Towards the end, they're going to realize whether they're going to win or lose, and they've got a chance to maybe like run away or surrender or change their plan again. But you only have a sort of a few decision points was my kind of um, my goal with this. Rather than rather than working through like 100 kind of irrelevant decision points, you may maybe have like three or four really crucial decision points in a combat. Interesting. So I'm just having a quick flick through as we're talking, and uh, I'm going to suggest to you that to run into the odd requires the gm to think of stuff on the fly quite a bit so if you look at the, like the hex crawl section of, of the sample adventure there's uh, picking an encounter at random there's some uh, deadly fruit from fruit trees and squawking birds and there's a bunch of like one and two way tags to go with that but compared to something like i don't know a DD adventure path or a pathfinder thing like there's not a lot of information there so it requires whoever's running it to be able to think on the feet a little bit and make that more interesting for the players would you say oh yeah definitely i think with this kind of style of play it's you know games tend to tend to go in sort of two directions at the moment they either they either ask a lot of the group as a whole which is kind of like these kind of collaborative storytelling games where everybody is like having this creative input or they put a lot of trust in one player which is typically the gm and that player is kind of you know all the players are involved but one player kind of has a lot of the weight on their shoulders and um and this is definitely the latter where it, it does rely on a gm being creative but i think in, in my experience it's hard to be creative when you've got a blank page in front of you but if you give someone even the smallest little spark of something 
um, that they can roll with, um, it's it's easy to be creative. Once you sort of get into that, when you sort of exercise that muscle a little bit, and once you've got those kind of sparks coming. So yeah, a lot of the encounters are things like um, very kind of short descriptions. There's a lot of bullet points in there, which I'm always a fan of, and um, and it, so so many of these decisions come from me essentially being really impatient um because I've, I've i've not got the patience to like sit and read one of these um giant dungeons like I, I never did even with the older ones like and sort of read through it ahead of time and like learn the whole world and you know when the, when the players enter a room sort of telling them to say oh hang on i just need to read this and then s they wait while you read like a whole column of text um i i always wanted it to be a lot more free-flowing th than that and as such these are kind of the dungeons in the wilderness are kind of designed that you could just pick them up and run them as long as you're happy making some of these uh creative decisions on the fly um and it for this kind of for the kind of tone as well the tone is kind of quite mysterious and like it's a weird odd world obviously um so things don't always make sense but i just pass that off as like a deliberate tonal choice <laughs> and, and, and it seems to like work sometimes so um so yeah you don't need to have all the answers if your world is deliberately uh mysterious and odd and did the writing for that sort of almost go in the same way as the system so that you had you wrote a bunch of words down and then you got your axe out and went through and started taking words out until the the, the entries didn't make a sense anymore and you put a word back in or... to, to be honest i tend I, I tend to use a slightly kind of the opposite approach when i'm designing these things which is i will use kind of one word so if i need to fill up a room in a dungeon i'll i'll just put like a list of one word things so it'll start really boring so i might have like oh there's a there's a pit and there's a bird a pit and a bird let's say and then i kind of go back to the start of the list and add something unexpected to it so i could say okay it's a pit but it's a i don't know an electric pit what would that be and then the bird might be a <laughs> i was gonna say a comedian bird why not um a comedian bird and an electric pit and then all of a sudden like even just by adding one word you've made them a little bit more off kilter um and then I, I tend to like just add more details until they they kind of feel about right and then see if i can sum that up in like fewer words so it's not just like an eight word trail uh, of me describing this weird bird uh, yeah and that, that kind of opposite approach works for me here it's almost like building it up rather than breaking it down but when it comes to rules that's when i get my axe out of, certainly <laughs> i'm kind of fascinated with uh, adventure design not from a writing perspective necessarily, but literally what they look like. And um, one of my favourite things of the original Into the Odd was the, the, the sample stuff that you put in there, the Iron Coral. You've got yourself a dungeon, you had a little wilderness area, you had a, a town. This is all very compact stuff, but I remember running it. I think it's still available in our archives. I think we've got some actual play yeah. from way back when. And I note that in your revised edition, the Iron Coral's getting a little bit of a, getting a, bit of a shot in the arm. It's getting a boost. Is it going to, um, how, how fundamentally different is it going to look? Is it, you've not turned it into an adventure path, have you? <laughs> it's, it definitely is not an adventure path. It's, <laughs> it's still very, so, so the Iron Coral, I should say, is like a, originally it was a, like a one floor dungeon and I think it had about 20 rooms. Mm. And the intent was really that players, in my experience, would typically spend like one session down there. And then by the end of the first session, they would be ready to leave one way or another um yeah. and and they might go back for a second session that happened once or twice when i played it but um but generally it's a one one or two session kind of dungeon and then they would go out to the the fallen marsh which is the the wilderness area and travel back to hope's end which is like the town um it's, it's sounding very adventure pathy now that i'm saying this out loud but <laughs> the, the thing with the iron core is i wanted it to be very different each time players went in so different groups it's, it's a very very non-linear dungeon there's lots of loops and a few little off dead ends and there's lots of hidden passageways and things like that so i, I wanted two players who played the sample dungeon to be able to talk to each other and say oh we didn't we didn't go anywhere near that area or like we didn't know that was there to make it feel very kind of big and mysterious but for the um the remastered edition yeah we i've added two new floors so it's it's tripled in size and as you might expect the the the, the sort of the, the, the i'm going to get really boring now and really into the details but you, you did ask for it in terms of the, the way the staircases work as well oh tell me about the staircases <laughs> <laughs> there's um it's it, that kind of continues the whole looping theme so there's there's more than one way up and down each of the each of the floors 
So it still is a very kind of labyrinthine dungeon, but now it's now it's three times as big. So I'm pretty confident anyone going in there is going to have a very different um, experience to to other groups, and it, and it should last them a good a good few sessions if they want to sort of thoroughly explore the place. How interested in things do the players have to be? So we've said there's a lot of weight sort of sits with the gem. It's that style of a thing. I know with some of the OSR style games, God forfend we actually call this an OSR game or anything. Oh, but, sorry, I don't even um, have it. Yeah. <laughs> One of the features of that style of game, I would suggest, is sometimes that the more you poke things, the more danger you get in. So you, get, you, kind of, you can run into a barrier sometimes where you're, like, you're low on resource, whether that be strength or hit points or whatever it is. So you get you don't want to interact with weird stuff because the chances are you'll end up dead and that's the end <laughs> of your adventure. So what's your sort of feelings around that and the kind of longevity of having, for example, a three-floor dungeon that you might end up going around several times because you get lost or something? Yeah. So I know you mean that there's some there, there's a certain kind of school of dungeon design that I think I've heard called like the nega dungeon, mm. like the negative dungeon, and it's like, and yeah, and the idea is it's it's full of horrible things that you don't want to touch because everything just like will bite you if you touch it, and it's, yeah. it's all bad. So I am kind of notorious for sometimes forgetting to put like good things in the dungeon, um, because I get so carried away putting in like fun things which are going to be like challenging and not necessarily dangerous, but just like weird things. That often I'll like run a session for a group and they'll come out and they'll say like, was there any treasure in this dungeon that we just spent like three hours <laughs> going around? And I'll, I'll look through the list and I'll think, oh shit, I didn't really put any in. With this one, I made, I did make a conscious effort. So it's it's about the risk reward. So you can have horrible places if you kind of hint at good things being in there and things that the characters might want because essentially the characters in this game are treasure hunters and explorers. Mm. So you want to be going and finding these... Um, arcana which are like the, the weird magic items of the system and um and you want to be finding things that you can you can sell because you, you don't start with a great deal of stuff um and money is really important in this game so um so yeah i'm, I'm pretty confident that they're gonna be able to pluck up the courage to uh to go and poke around cool and, and arcana is an interesting one i was sort of looking there's um a bunch of different stuff you could do and it goes typically for into the audit does weird stuff quite often more often than not yeah uh, but the, there's of all the sections in the book, actually, like Arcana takes up quite a few pages. It's like you know, there's, it's probably the one that gets the most rich detail, and that did lead me to believe, or think, perhaps, if I, if and when I'm running this, that I might do it a little bit like Numenera, for example, which has ciphers, which are these weird one-use magic things that you pick up and then they're used, and then you find some more, yeah. and you're constantly cycling through them. Is that is that a sort of feeling with Arcana that you have as well that you can kind of you get them and you have them for a bit and then it'll probably get boring so you want some new ones yeah or something or well this is why the so this is one of the sections that got expanded a lot in this edition because um previously there were um i think there were 20 and now i've expanded it to like a d66 table so it's 36 now in the in the sorry this is the starter arcana and then there are there are further arcana that you could potentially find um further down the line and um yeah the idea is that i i I've gone through and changed a lot of them because in the original edition, some of them were kind of almost too universally useful <laughs> um, where it's kind of like you, you wouldn't ever want to not have this thing. So now I've one of the lessons I kind of learned when I did Electric Bastion, which had like a similar kind of thing with, with oddities, is I, I've kind of tried to make them more like specific in their use. So it's more like a kind of a toolbox, if you like, um, that you have access to. And... Um, and yeah, you might you might get rid of some of the ones that don't um, don't appeal to you anymore. And you might want to bring out certain ones for like special situations. But they, yeah, they, they are Numenera. I think came out around a similar time to Into the Odd because I remember a lot of comparison at the time with that element of it. But the, the big inspiration is kind of like those weird D and D items. So things like the portable hole, um, immovable rod, any any item where you kind of only need to know the name and then you kind of know what it does. Um, I feel <laughs> like that's always like a good. A good sense of design like if you, you know how this immovable rod works if i say it's a rod with a button and it becomes immovable immovable we don't need any like rules to deal with that so that that's the kind of gold standard that i've been aiming for with these certainly they're so classic those things sovereign glue is another example yeah exactly yeah. you know love that stuff and and the best D games with those things in them are when you give them to first level characters and I think, yes. you know, like Rod of Annihilation plus first level characters is kind of how I would define Into the Odd. I know we're still trying to define <laughs> it, but that's almost essentially what what the games that I've played of it turn out to be like. Here's this massively, massively overpowered thing. And whatever you do with it is going to be interesting. 
but it may result in unintended consequences. That's the adventure, isn't it? Yeah. And again, that all comes down to being impatient. Like, I don't want to wait till I'm level 10 to start getting, like, weird stuff. Mm. Like, personally, my campaigns don't, like, last that long. I tend to play, like, shorter campaigns and one-shots more than anything else. Mm. So yeah, I think I very consciously put that the first the first Arcana on the list is essentially a portal gun, um, and that's kind of a deliberate way of kind of setting the tone because you know you you can start there's not many games where you can start level one with a portal gun. Not enough games. Not enough, exactly. <laughs> uh, and a quite you've got like a quite a bunch of little like just one page extra bits of rules, which in a way I almost feel like. Not tacked on, but just like it feels like something you've thought of and going like, oh yeah, I need rules for advancement. So you just like wrote a page on advancement. Yeah. Uh, but they all, they all seem quite, um, certainly the advancement stuff's pretty uh, functional. And I, I don't like using the word elegant in role playing games because it gets overused. <laughs> but but I like the idea of it. They're like, okay, have another D6 hit points and then roll all these stats if you get over a matter of point to them. Yeah. That just feels like, um, compared to having to level up a D&D adventure, for example, that's just like the kind of level of advancement I want, I think. From, certainly from this sort of game, you just want something that. Gives you the extra, but with that, you know, once you learn that rule, you'd never have to look it up again. Yeah, and that's the thing that I've sort of, I've written about a lot, is that the idea of this thing called, like, foreground growth. So that, like, I'm not so much interested in, like, what happens to your character between sessions when they level up from level four to level five, and, and they come back next week and they've got some new ability. Like, I want that stuff to happen, like, in the game. So you're more likely to, like, find that weird, if you want to get, like, a new weird special ability, you're probably going to find it, like, in the bottom of some horrible place like and it's going to be some weird item that has that ability or like some weird monster or like touch you and give it to you so it's i, I wanted to put the gro- the growth in the in the game so it's, it's more likely to happen there and then the the sort of advancement is almost like almost like secondary to that really where yeah you, you will get some more hp over time and it'll change the way that you play that's that's kind of the main idea with it really um and it might give you like some new targets so like for the higher levels you want to like you need to have like an apprentice that you've like raised up to a higher level and things like that but yeah a lot of the a lot of the little additions things like the, there's like a little tiny section on like running a business which is just like a couple of not even a couple of paragraphs really and like one for like battles and they're kind of like a nod to like the old like you know rule cyclopedia and like basic um basic D where you had like these weird little side rules that were just kind of felt a little bit shoved in but i wanted to make them actually things that you might actually use because it, it it's not some weird arcane like subsystem it's just like a nice simple little way to like say oh yeah we we, we have this business that we've come across and uh, there's just a very simple couple of roles to like see what's happening with it yeah i, I recall detachments i recall and, and i may be wrong on this it's been a little while since i've looked in the original book but that i'm sure that was that wasn't even a paragraph was it, it was a couple of sentences and he'd basically done everything that other games would force you to buy a 300 page book to understand yeah essentially so a detachment um when they attack as an individual their attacks are enhanced which means they roll a d12 instead of their normal damage um they can't be attacked by individuals unless they're explosive or suitably large scale (laughs) and if you want to do something fancy as a leader you need to make a will save and that's it and that's the battle system essentially (laughs) other than that a detachment is just treated like an individual (laughs) and uh and you know i'm not saying this is going to replace like um you know a grand miniature war game that you're going to want to spend hours on a on a table but it's it it's there to do a job and it's that's what i wanted with these kind of subsystems because the main the main game is always going to be like going and exploring and problem solving and trying not to die to these horrible monsters so uh i i like having them there as a little kind of a little side dish if you like i i think though that for me those side dishes encourage you to get them on the table in the first place yeah because i i want to have detachments in my game but there are certain games I play where I don't even want to. I don't want to have a squire or a henchman or or even just. I don't even want to buy anything just because it's going to go. Oh my god! This is going to eat into the entire night to do this, to stat this, to roll this, to play this. It's just going to be way more than way more than the effort in, entails. Whereas if I if I've got a game where detachments could be like that, then I, all of a sudden I do want to go and hire a, a bunch of grenadiers or something like that because yeah, it can yeah. be handled. Yeah, it's like in in like old like versions of like D anD. I remember like playing like like I wouldn't want to be a wizard because it, it felt like it was too complex a system for me to be bothered with learning. 
um, which sounds ridiculous now. I say it out loud, but like, and same with that warm <laughs> fantasy role play. Like that, that's, if I, I remember having like a, playing playing around with it a little bit and getting a character like that could have potentially like engaged with the magic system. And it, it, I I wanted to because it had all these cool effects and weird things you could do, but I also didn't want to have to learn it. <laughs> so it, again, it all comes down from laziness and impatience, really. The other thing you've done is, is sort of in the like the hazards and tricks section and stuff is deconstructed some of the learning that people have from playing D and Warhammer and stuff like that. And it's things like uh, if there's a trap, the players will definitely see it. And it's only if they mess about or are incautious that it's likely to go off and you get a deck save. And uh, you know you you can pick locks if you want, but like don't bother rolling unless there's some consequence for that. You know if there's a time pressure or something that's going to happen. You can kick doors in, you just can, but it's going to be noisy and you probably like alert some of the creatures. And it's just that, that way of like bypassing a lot of the let's not kick DD all the time, a lot of the Pathfinder stuff <laughs> where you kind of yeah. like because there's like you know pick locks on your character sheet, people want to pick a lock almost. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's, it's good to like in the rules explicitly state like just don't bother rolling for any of these like eight things, like just get on with it. Yeah, kind of I think the, the traps is the one that I've sort of rallied for the most. I think the idea that trap should always be spotted unless you're kind of running around with your eyes closed and it, it doesn't it doesn't make perfect sense because if if you are if you are building a dungeon and you build a trap the whole point is it should be hard to spot and it should be really deadly when someone steps on it but for a game that that's rarely actually fun and the fun bit of a trap is when you know the room starts filling with sand and you've got to work out a way to get out or you know you, you step into a room and there's all these all these weird blades swinging around these buttons that you can press and you need to work out like what what to do um it's that to me is like again it gives you a chance to actually engage with the trap rather than just be like a victim to it it just happens to yeah which like you know for for home security point of view you you want your trap to like just be amazing but it's it's not always that fun for the victim (laughs) yeah i recall way 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 back in the day early 80s probably avidly reading Grimtooth Traps for Tunnels and Trolls. Loved those books, mm. loved those traps. And the ones that were in White Dwarf as well, with the cutaways, and there was a pile of rocks hidden in a crevice above the door, and you know some uh, some gunpowder fuses trapped, uh, meshed within spider's web, so that when you burnt away spider's web, it ignited the ceiling. That stuff's brilliant to read as a GM, but if it doesn't come out of the table, what really is the point of, the, of you just reading that and chuckling to yourself before your mates get round there? It's almost like I'm going to show you all of this deadly stuff, but now you're going to have to figure out what to do with it. And that's, again, that's where adventure happens. That's where play happens, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And, and you can still make them like super deadly. But I think <clears throat> my, my kind of rule is they should have a, what, there should be a decision point somewhere between the point where they realize there's a trap and the point where they are like potentially dead. So, um, so you could have it be like super deadly as long as there's like a point where you say, okay, well, you step on the, you step on the invisible button that you couldn't possibly have found and all these things start swinging out at you like what do you do now as long as you have that moment then you're you're probably okay but um but yeah like you say the, the, the grimtooth ones i remember having like one of the big compilations and i think some of them are more for the, the gm's enjoyment rather than the uh, the table's enjoyment definitely <laughs> cool so you've um, you've also alluded to uh, your previous game which was kind of a follow-on from it, Electro Bastion Land. Um, and that was uh, a more electrified version, I guess, a sort of almost Victorian version, uh, for grasping for labels again, which you hate. But what what lessons do you think you've learned from doing Electric Bastion Land and then coming back and looking into the app? So it's interesting because when I did Electric Bastion Land, which uses like essentially the same system. There's there's like a few little tweaks to the system, but it's essentially the same system. It's the same setting in the sense that there is this city of Bastion, and there is you know the deep country outside Bastion, and there's the underground that exists underneath. Um, so a lot of it is the same, but then it's it's a very different type of book, um, and I, I kind of half expected it to replace Into the Odd, um, because I thought. I, I was kind of making the changes that I wanted to put in the game and I was creating like the book that I wanted to have which I think is always a good thing to do like when you're designing these things and um, and as a result um, I, I was really happy with it and a lot of people were really happy with it but there were still like a, a defiant few people that would tell me like oh yeah you know I, I liked Electro Bastion but I still I still play into the odd um, out of choice and I would sort <laughs> of like say I'm not, I'm not like 
not in too much disbelief, but I would I would sort of say like, all right, well, why why do you stick with it? And there were there were things about Into the Odd that people really connected with that um, the Electric Bastion and just like didn't quite connect the same. So like I say, it was a very different type of book, but um, Into the Odd has a bit more of a kind of horror feel. Whereas Electric Bastion and is a little bit more kind of light-hearted in some ways. It's still dark humor, but there, yeah. there's definitely more of a humor element to it. Um, the, the name might suggest Electric Bastion and is a bit more kind of modern. It's kind of like early 20th century is like the rough guide. Um, but Into the Odd is kind of very specifically like industrial, a bit more kind of grimy and dark. So the the, the pitch I've been using for people that came from Electric Bastion Land is that this is industrial Bastion Land. So, yeah, coming back to it, the main thing that I wanted to do was really kind of make sure that I didn't take away what people enjoyed about the original and almost almost approaching it like I was doing a remaster of, like, somebody else's game, which sounds weird to say because, like, it's, it's all written by me. But um, because it was written so long ago, I kind of came back to it almost with, like, with fresh eyes and... I didn't want to change too much. I was very cautious about what I brought back from Electric Bastion Land, so there are a few little rules tweaks that are in there from uh, from that book. But for the most part, I've the, the lesson I've taken is that um, not everybody wants to like not everybody wants the changes that you want necessarily. <laughs> so I've tried to like, whereas I've changed what needs to be changed, I've tried to preserve the kind of the tone and the uh, that sort of slightly dark industrial horror little touch of sci-fi kind of tone that people seem to really enjoy cool so it's not just your own games of course there's there's other as out there you mentioned one or two is, is there anything out there in the design space because you've mentioned there you still look at blogs it sounds like yeah, yeah. Uh, the g plus community that probably some people don't even know about now was thriving was there's this like whole other social media outlet that people used to like basically design games on with the help of the designers so are you, are you still plugged into that network to some degree and is there anything exciting happening in that design space that you spotted i mean the the, the big one for me is um so I, I do try and follow the blogs um without without going into too much of a like a uh, an autobiography of my post google plus wandering <laughs> uh, looking for a home um i i had a um i've had i'm just gonna i'm just gonna come out and say it. i i would say largely it. i've had a negative experience with twitter so I now use it purely as like a marketing thing for my, it's like the most corporate account. Originally it was, um, it, my account was um, Chris McDowell and then it was Chris McDowell, Bastion and Press. And then it was mm. Bastion and Press and then in brackets, Chris McDowell. And now it's just Bastion and Press. It's, <laughs> I'm removing myself from it um, because it's it's just not for me for various reasons. And um, the, where was I going with this? So as such, um, I, I sort of, after I made that decision to sort of step away from there, I, I, I did revisit the blogs and kind of tried to like get back on board with that kind of like long form writing that people are doing. So that is obviously the thing that you miss out on Twitter. You get these long threads, but it's not quite the same as like somebody being able to make like an actual blog post article with like, you know, formatting and charts and whatever they need to put on there and um, an artwork. Um, so I've been going back into that, and the the movement that's really excited me. I said earlier on about the um, the FKR uh, free Kriegspiel stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I I kind of hate the name because it makes it sound a lot more intimidating than it is. I think, but it's it's essentially kind of a um, it, it it matches up with a lot of what I um, was kind of already doing, which is like having much much less approach on rules and more approach on like the world. So thinking more about like well how am I going to run this setting and how am I going to make this world interesting rather than worrying about having lots of rules for everything so that that's that's a space that's really interesting at the minute because I feel like I've spent so much time over the years thinking about mechanics and thinking about the world kind of alongside that I I would be interested to run something that's like almost like a freeform uh, thing Mm. so that that's yeah that's something I'm, I'm tinkering with at the moment for sure that's a bit of a weird one. I'm with you on the name because Kriegspiel makes it sound like it's some uh, ancient Bavarian war game with like ex, you know, well yeah, it's for Panzers or something. Yeah, it's like it's Prussian in origin, and it's it, that doesn't yeah. exactly um, leap out as a, an exciting and uh, welcoming <laughs> environment necessarily <laughs> for people to come to. And the irony is, I think it's it kind of puts a lot on the GM. Like it's even more of that sort of thing. Really, the referee or GM kind of really needs to be confident in the world. But for the players, the thing that I've always wanted for players in my games is that players don't need to know the rules. 
all I want players to be thinking about is what do you do? Like, here's the situation. What do you do? And it's the same when I'm playing, really. That's all I really want to do. I'm not so fussed about, like, complex character sheets and things like that. I, I, I like having a few weird items and a few weird abilities that don't necessarily need rules. So yeah, I, th I think it has the potential to be like really welcoming, but the, yeah, the names the names a little bit scary. But I think I think we're stuck with it now at this point. <laughs> one of the uh, one of the questions I wanted to ask Chris is in the in the last seven years, you've you've not been alone. You've been quite generous with with your game, and um, lots of other people have taken your game and done things with it, which has got to be a how's that feel when you see other people taking your stuff and. Not just, you know, it's nice to hear about other people playing your game. That That's one level. But then taking your game, writing some more stuff for it, putting it out in publication, whether on a blog or on itch, something like that. I'm just looking on itch now. There is so much stuff with the mark of the odd on it. It's unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. How's that feel? It's, well, I mean, as you can imagine, it's it's ridiculous. Like, that. I, I, I genuinely like when I made this game. I, I've always tried to make games that are just games for myself because whenever I read a different game, even if it's a game that I love, I can't help but think like, oh yeah, but if I was running this, I'd change that. And I know that's like a terrible attitude to have, like, because I, I understand like, it, 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 that's not great for every group, but like, I, I can't help myself. And it just deteriorates into thinking, well, I, I like this game, but I would just make it my own way. So every game that I make is kind of like just for my shelf. And mm. the idea that somebody else would like find that, that useful, um, or find that kind of engaging is obviously an amazing feeling and I've always tried to do games that I I know that my games aren't going to be like for everyone I, I would I don't want to try and make something that's middle of the road and like appeals to every person that's ever played an RPG I, I like to think that anybody who's played an RPG could play this and enjoy it but what I really want is for a few people maybe more than a few like a good number of people to just like really <laughs> click with it and to have like some people say like, oh, this is this is my favorite game, and I'd rather have that than have like everybody quite like it. Do you get what I mean? Yeah, like a like a cult movie. Is, yeah, yeah. Is I, I would wear that as a badge of honor if that was applied to my stuff. Yeah, definitely. Rather than sort of a rather than something that like does well at the box office and then it's kind of forgotten mm. in three years time. I'd rather it be something that like people are getting excited about. Yeah, going going to screenings off and so on. Um, and I think that the, the sort of the people that have taken it and run with it have really kind of embraced that, and yeah, it's 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 an amazing feeling, definitely. I, I can hear the marketing people at Free League with their heads in their hands now, going, "What's he saying? <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't want it to be successful." <laughs> no, I, I think I, I think I think we get what you're saying. <laughs> Probably the, the ease of rules make it easier for them people to pick up, don't they? I think that's that's one of the things. So the, there's a bunch of different games that, well, like the, in the D20 revolution or whatever it was at the time when they went okay we've got OGL now yeah there's a whole bunch of people produced a whole lot of stuff but that wasn't really necessarily very good there was a lot of dross that comes out where I think something like this it's, it's easy to put across and get get an angle and then it's about the flavor as you were saying before so somebody could put their own flavor on it yeah and there's very little barrier in terms of doing the plumbing underneath to make it work it's more about putting your own world out there into someone's hands and into the enables that quite simply yeah because there's so few sort of moving parts you don't have to think well i need to design like eight different classes across 20 levels for the, for this world mm. if i want to make a i don't know a star trek game based around this i don't need to think about how i'm going to balance the party and all this stuff all you need to do really is <laughs> all you need to do is write 60 different character uh, starter <laughs> packages um which sounds like a lot but they are the starter packages that you get are like three or four items that's kind of that's kind of the big thing that people seem to really enjoy doing is is making their own versions of those starter packages and but just just between that and like the equipment list and and even just like the name of there's there's three ability scores and just changing the name of them like changes the tone of the game so th there's like a relatively small little number of like levers that you can pull but i think each one that you pull kind of imparts a lot of flavor um for your specific type of game, so I think I think that's why, yeah, I think that's why people have found it useful as sort of a system that you can hack quite easily. You have got me thinking about a Star Trek one. <laughs> I haven't seen a Star Trek one. I, I know there is like there's a few like general sci-fi ones. For some reason, Star Trek was the first thing that came into my head. But um... you can definitely imagine a way team that got put down somewhere and then got stuck, 
and now they're having to go into these weird alien places to try and find things to survive or get away back to their ship or yeah, yeah. signal Starfleet at some point. But like Arcana's just sci-fi or weird alien stuff. Oh yeah. And you start packages, whatever it is you turned up with. So like there'll be one of the professions that gets a the tricorder, but like most won't. They'll have like some weird alien ferret that's pink with six yeah, legs yeah. or something. A weird a weird thing on your head. I don't write that now. <laughs> <That's>, uh... <laughs> Yeah, it's going to be called To Boldly Go, right? Yes. Yeah, this, this stuff writes itself, mate. It's easy being a publisher. <laughs> so, I mean, Chris, you alluded to this a while back, mate, uh, a while back in our chat. Um, you said that, you know, before this was your full-time endeavour. Is, is it still the case that this is your full-time endeavour? You're yeah, making yeah. a living out of role-playing. Yeah, so it's, it's still ridiculous to say out loud, but it's yeah, it's been about eighteen months. Um, mm. it, it did coincide with the start of lockdown uh, last year, <laughs> um, but it was, it was already planned ahead of that. I meant that. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it was literally that my, my last week working at my previous job, which was in the wine industry, um, was um, that, that my last week was like the week that they announced the lockdown. So I I had to leave the office like a day early. I think I can't remember which day it was, but like the office that I was in closed on like the Thursday and I was due to finish on the Friday. So I, I thought I was doing this really adventurous thing by like working from home and like starting my own thing and then like everyone in the world doing it. So it's, <laughs> it, it took off some of that. Now you want cool to do something factor. else, right? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah, I, I am, it is, it is still, um, still my, my full-time job and it's, um, it's been an, an experience the last 18 months, like getting used to that, but it's been a good one. Absolutely. I'm, I'm very aware how, uh, I look I am to be able to do that at the moment. What does your day look like, mate? Have you got a have you got a word mountain you've got to kill every day? It's it's people ask me this and then I sort of go blank because I I do somehow manage to fill the entire day, but the, the, <laughs> it's, it's often not like a typical thing. I I I I can't sit at my desk and like write for 8 hours like I think that there are some days when I'm like super inspired I might just want to like bash out like loads of words for something but in general, it's it, it doesn't necessarily work like that. There's a lot of sort of um, I'll come away at the end of the day and I feel like if I've written like one really good page, that's better than me like writing a lot of a lot of guff. But um, but I've been doing the um, I I do like a lot of sort of things like the um, I, I, this isn't an advert for my Patreon, but I do like a <laughs> some like editorials for my Patreon. I try and keep the blog uh, ticking over with new new content and things like that, and I do like videos and podcasts and things. Because, yeah, I don't think I could do the literally writing 9 to 5, Monday to Friday. No, it, well, I don't think it would suit your style because I think you'd be writing it on Monday and then spending Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday and Friday hacking out all the adjectives and leaving it as small as you could possibly get well, it. Well, yeah, I mean... And on, <laughs> and on Friday night, you'd have three beautiful words. <laughs> That's it. I think that the thing is, it's it's really difficult when you... I, I did find that when I was, like, working a different... When I was working, like, a day job, I'd constantly be like having ideas like when I was like so I'd be moving some boxes at work or something and like I think of something I think oh, I've got to write that down so I'd like get my phone out and like tap it into a Google document and and that's the one thing I do kind of miss so I, I have to make an effort to like go and do other things mm-hmm. because I often find I come up with better ideas if I'm like oh I need to I need to go and like clean up my car or something or like go and like do some washing or something often like that 10 minutes will like give me more ideas than if I'm sat at my screen 10 minutes trying to come up with something so it's a it's a balance I, I try and my, my my sort of line that I gave myself last year was that I I'm trying to like follow the muse and like follow inspiration where it leads and um and write what's inspiring me rather than what I feel I should write if that makes sense and and we'll see if that pays off because that, that's quite a, a luxurious um tone to take as a as a working game designer but it's um it's worked out all right so far yeah, we, we always ask our guests this question. I suppose it's time for it now. It's a, uh, it's interesting to hear where you where you get your creative muse from because we always ask what's inspiring, what's inspiring you at the moment. What are you playing? What are you watching? What are you listening to that that you'd like to evangelise? And and I wonder, I wonder if you get if you get inspired by other stuff in RPGs. It sounds like that you're more adjacent to that kind of thing. I don't know. So I, I don't play many other RPGs at the moment because if I get a chance, I mean, obviously the last 18 months has been like bonkers and it's been, and we're only, we're only just kind of getting to the point where I'm sort of sat, sitting around a table with people and mm-hmm. playing anything. And um, 
at the moment I've been playing more playing more board games than RPGs just because it's uh, it's a bit it's nice to have a bit more of a social get together with friends at the moment uh, while we can. I, I I do take inspiration from RPGs, but and I'm going to be completely honest, and this is a terrible thing to say. I take more inspiration from like reading RPGs and thinking like what I wish the game was like. <laughs> so you know, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of like picking up an RPG and looking at the cover and then reading the back and thinking, oh, this is going to be great. And then you, you sort of start reading the rules and your heart kind of sinks slightly. And this isn't a slight yeah. on any particular game. It, it happens to me with like games that I know are, are fantastic. But I do always like to sound like a massive egotist. I always think, oh, I could do this. They could do this slightly simpler. There, there's a simpler way of doing this. And that is where a lot of my kind of ideas start. They'll start off as thinking like, I like this. I like the sound of this game, but I want to do it more stripped back and then sort of as things sort of twist and warp as i'm doing it it'll kind of move in a different direction but that is often kind of the starting point is the idea of trying to streamline something that already exists that's definitely yeah i think i think that along with like like i said at the risk of sounding like an advert for for blogs i think rpg blogs have always been like a massive inspiration for me i think there's so much like creative so many creative ideas out there and so many people who are writing amazing stuff that is better than what I'll see in like printed books a lot of the time mm. and ideas that are like genuinely like new and exciting and taking inspiration from them is, is always been like a big factor for me as well. It almost feels like uh, with the interior style that's kind of what you want you just want the ideas you don't want to necessarily flesh them out or spoil them by putting rules around them or putting too many words on them it feels like a bullet, you know, a list of bullet points mm. and a, a map drawn on the back of a beer mat is like a great into the other adventure. That's enough. Yeah, like, definitely. Rumble. I think that I did. Um, so it was at one of the. Um, let me think. It was at Dragon Meet. Not not the not the one that I um, met you guys at. Well, I think it was, I think it was three Dragon Meets ago actually. So I don't know if I did. Um, oh no, I did. We did it. We did an interview with David Black as well. Yes, um, I think it was I mean, that yes. Dragon Meet because um, I played a game with with David amongst other people. Well, at the, at the time, it was like an early early version of Electric Bastion, and so it was mostly just into the odd. And I kind of got pressured into running this game very last minute because I wasn't planning on running it. And then a couple of uh, people that I knew were like, "Oh, go on, just 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 run it. We'll we'll try it out." And I kind of had like they said, "Oh, well, we'll we'll go get some drinks or something." I think I had like ten minutes to prepare this dungeon, and I literally just rolled like some. some I'd like I'd had, had like these random word tables, these these spark tables in the book. So I just kind of rolled like some random words and scribbled them down in in the, the dungeon rooms. So a dungeon room might just say like, I don't know, rock grandfather or something. And then when we got to it, I would kind of work out what that meant on the fly. And I'm not saying it was like the world's most consistent, uh, evocative world. Um, but I, I find that kind of thing a fun challenge. Like I find running the game can be like a game in itself that kind of having to like think quick and come up with things fast and um and i think you can you can treat it like a job like you can think oh i've got to get everything prepared like i'm doing an interview for like the career opportunity of a lifetime and i've got to i've got to get this presentation right and the, the players aren't the players are going to lose interest if i don't get everything perfect and laid out but i think in my experience players do respond better if you are a little bit more playful about it and you're almost like you're doing a different you're playing a slightly different game than they are but you're still playing when you're running a game and it kind of like softens the tone slightly so they don't feel like you're the teacher and they're there to to listen and they almost want to try and catch you out because you know you always want to catch the teacher out don't you um <laughs> it, it becomes a bit more it's collaborative in a different way than like these sort of storytelling games but i think it makes it feel a little bit more like a collaborative experience to me if you do have that kind of creative challenge for the the dm as well i'm rambling really heavily with these answers you we, we said earlier on about how you didn't want one word answers so i, I bet you're regretting that um <laughs> that advice now yeah we, we take it back <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a string of one words put together yeah. to give you it's been a while since i've done a uh, it's been a while since i've been on this side of the podcasting thing i'm normally on the other side <laughs> yeah we, we can tell you've been working from home for 18 months so you've finally got something to talk to <laughs> How's the podcast going, Nick? Chris, because you you are on the other side of the microphone normally, aren't you? 
Yeah, yeah. So I've done um, it's it's an infrequent podcast. I'm going for the like the British sitcom model of doing six episode series like once every year, and leave, leaving people wanting more. Yeah, I I I wanted to do. That was one of the things that I started to do. Um, it was a it was a stretch goal for Electric Bastion and was to do like some audio com- audio commentaries where I'd like talk through different elements of the book with some people that had worked on the book with me or some people that I just knew would have some interesting thoughts and um and yeah it it was a lot of fun just talking to people like i I would kind of do it even if it didn't count as like work because it's uh, (laughs) i don't think it brings in like a massive number of listeners or a massive i don't think it's like a brilliant marketing thing but it's just a good opportunity to like it's a good excuse to like get in touch with people that i want to talk to and uh and sort of pin them down for an hour and uh and reach out to people that i didn't think i'd be able to get and i'm getting like slightly cheekier with each series so next series well, one of the stretch goals for Into the Odd, oh, which we've we've hit, I should say, is to do another set of audio commentaries. So I'll I'll be doing nice. another series of that'll be kind of a series of the podcast. Um, it'll be six episodes, and for each of those episodes, I'm having a guest on that's done something with Into the Odd. Um, so I can't confirm any names yet, but if you know a system that you like that uses Into the Odd, then maybe I'll be talking to someone that that made that. Well, by episode six, you'll be talking to me about Star Trek. That's it, yeah, yeah. That, that can be the seventh episode, yeah. Although I need to file off the trademarks and stuff on that and copyright. So. <laughs> It'll be Sunwalk or something, but we'll find a name. We'll sort it. Cool. Well, as you've been rambling, we've, we've kind of come across time now, so we've more or less filled our hour. Uh, is there anything else that you're doing or up to or having a pipeline you want to tell our loyal listeners about before we say goodbye for the evening? At the moment, this is the big thing. Um, I've got a next year. There's going to be some um, some stuff going on with a miniatures game that I've been working on. Um, if you're that way inclined, um, called the Doomed, and um, and yeah, there's always something going on. So you can the best way to stay in touch is to go to bastionland.com. Um, there's a link to a Discord server, which is probably the best place to actually socialize with me now, since I, like I say, I'm stepping away from Twitter as best I can. And um, and yeah, bastionand.com has all the links to like YouTube podcasts or all that sort of thing. So um, so yeah, that's the place to be. Wonderful stuff. Well, thanks for coming on, Chris. It's been a delight as always, and we will probably see you at Dragon Meet. Yeah, awesome. hopefully, I, I am going this year. All touch wood, all being well. Um, I'll, I'll be there for the, the for the two nights this year. So yeah, going whole hog. Excellent. All right, looking forward to that. It'd be great to have a pint. Cheers, Chris. Cheers. <laughs>